Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. It is precious to us, and I pray that, that, that those aren't just words. I pray that you work that miracle in our heart to let us see the light and the truth and the glory of your gospel that is written on every page, Lord. Help us to live by it and be moved by it and to, to order our lives according to it, Lord. Let it set on us and be seed for the sower. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now that is a mouthful, if ever there was one. And not just because it's a lot of words, but because there's a whole lot happening in that text right there. There's a whole lot that is packed in that text. I'm just wondering if any of you have ever heard a story. I don't wonder. I know it. You've all heard stories that are so familiar to you. You feel like you just, you just know them. You know, you've heard them a thousand times uh, over and over again, it's the same story, and it's, it's, very fa it's a very familiar story to you. And so you just, you never really take the time to really dig in and see what's really going on under the surface of the story. And I, I'm thinking about childhood stories that we heard, like the, the Three Little Pigs or Red Riding Hood, you know, things like that. Just, we just know the story because we hear it so often. And especially those of us who have grown up in church, even the world knows many of the Bible stories, Jonah and the whale and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and Jesus feeding the 5,000. We all know this story of where Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who do people say that I am, guys? And everybody says, Oh, some say you're Elijah, and some say you're Jeremiah, John the Baptist, or one of the prophets. But who do you say you are the Christ? Blessed are you! I mean, we all know this story. I've heard it a thousand times, especially if you were in, in Sunday school. This is just one of those things that we're so familiar with. And, and I've preached about this before. The problem with familiarity is that it, it, um, it takes away the specialness of it. Amen. That's why, you know, a lot of churches, they'll, they'll do communion every Sunday. And I have no problem with that. But when, every, when, when it's always communion, then communion stops being special. You know, I want communion to be special. That's why God only had certain uh, uh, festivals or certain feasts ordained throughout the year. It wasn't feast time all the time. It was feast time at some of the time. So you would know the difference between seed time and harvest. You'd know the difference between toil and rest. You'd know the difference between when things are lacking and when things are plenty. He wants to show us that He is the God of plenty. So in order to know that or understand that, we have to sometimes go through some, some lack. 
So we've all heard the story, and, we, and I don't know that we, we spend much time really digging into what's, what's going on. It's easy to see the surface-level stuff, you know, but what are the broader and deeper things that are being demonstrated in, in this, this account that we have that was so important, not only for Matthew to record it, but Mark and Luke also. Um, all three of the Gnostic Gospels recorded this this account where Jesus said, who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? And I feel like that's how we approach this passage. You know, what's happening under the surface? We don't really ever ask that. We just, we get the surface, oh, Jesus is Lord. People think he's one of the prophets, but Jesus is Lord. And we don't really dig deeper into seeing what that, what that really means because we think we've got it. So we don't give it a second thought. Remember the last time that, uh, I guess it was two weeks ago, and thank you, Barry, for for preaching last week. Um, well, last time we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this is verse 1 through 4, where Paul, he wanted the church to be reminded of what is of first importance. And he, and he said in verse 1 in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, now I would remind you brothers of something very important. I would remind you of the gospel that I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word that I preach, unless you believed in vain. Now, he said, we need to be reminded from time to time of the gospel, because it is, it is the foundation upon which we stand. It is the power by which we are saved. It is the hope and the treasure that we must hold fast to. Amen. And then he says in verse 3, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what you also, what I also received, and that is the gospel, which Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day, again, in accordance with the scriptures. Amen. The gospel, Paul says, is of first importance. Jesus came, he lived a sinless life that, that we were supposed to have lived, but we refused to. He died a sinner's death that we deserve to die so that we who are sinners who, and all of us who have fallen short of the glory of God, we might be saved from that death that we deserve, that punishment that we deserve, and we might be restored into a right relationship with God our Creator. It's good that we be reminded of this from time to time. God, who is infinitely holy because of His infinite holiness, our disobedience and our, our sin against Him is infinitely wicked and thereby we deserve infinite judgment. That's why it is, it is righteous and good and right for God to say, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity, those who never knew him, and cast them into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever and ever. Some would say, why is it okay for a person who only lives 60 to 80 years, even though they live a horrible, sinful life, why does that warrant an eternal punishment? 80 years of bad behavior for an eternity of punishment? It's because the 80 years of bad behavior is infinite wicked against an infinitely holy God and it requires to satisfy justice and infinite punishment God is just we must be reminded of that that same infinitely holy God is also abundantly rich in mercy towards us and so because there was no lamb that was good enough, and we saw this demonstrated throughout all of the Old Testament history with the sacrificial system, day after day, night after night, morning after morning, they had to kill a lamb or kill a bull or kill a, a goat or a dove, and they had to bring animal after. It was the, the priests were nothing more than glorified butchers. 
They were knee-deep in blood all day long. It was day in, day out. The slaughtering of animals for the atonement of the sins of the people. Nothing would satisfy. It was an ongoing, ever-going, ever never-ending struggle. Just to, just to get us in right standing with our Creator. So there was no sacrifice that was worthy. It was all of temporary significance. And in fact, it wouldn't last from one morning to the next. I'd do one in the morning and one in the evening. Amen. So in God's infinite mercy, He sent Jesus Christ. God Himself became human in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we could not live that we would not live and proved himself to be the spotless lamb of God and he took our punishment once and for all. Amen. Isaiah 53, you know this passage, surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. And this part is so true. All we like sheep have gone astray. Amen. We have turned every one to his own way. And look at the precious gospel. Amen. The Lord has laid on him. Who? Christ, the Son of God, laid on him the iniquity of us all. He took it. Amen. I'm reminded of the words of that old song that we sing. He paid a debt. He did not owe. And I owed a debt that I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And so now, now I sing a brand new song. Amazing grace. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. Church, it is good and necessary to be reminded every once in a while of just where we would be without Jesus. It is good and necessary to think about how far we've come with Jesus. Just how far he's brought us out of the muck and the miry clay. Amen. Out of the mess that we found ourselves in. Out of the darkness and blindness that we used to live in. Out of the, the deadness of our sins. Jesus did this for us. Jesus, he is the name above every name. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, who is both the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. Jesus, who is closer than a brother, and yet He is the ruler of every nation, the Lord of all of creation. Jesus, who is mighty to save. Jesus, who conquered sin and sickness and death and hell and the grave, and He keeps on conquering them day after day after day. Conquers sin in my life minute after minute. Jesus, who is coming again in power and glory and will one day rule the earth. We need to remember who we serve. This is not some nameless God or some foolish man that we serve. He is the eternal self-existent one. 
All things are made by him, and he upholds all things by the power of his word. Church, let us rejoice in him. Let us be glad in him. Let us exalt his name together. Clap your hands, O ye people. Shout to the Lord with a voice of triumph. That's the Psalms. That's the command from Scripture. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. It's worth rejoicing. It's worth being reminded that we have a Savior who is God, who came to earth to die for our sins. He did that for you and for me and for all of humanity so that we might be in right standing with Him. I can't say it loud enough. God is infinitely good in Jesus Christ. So do you spend any time ever considering just who Jesus is? He's not a storybook character. Do you ever just think about that? I mean, I mean, we know that he was a person, right? We know he was a, a good person, a kind, loving, generous person. We know that he was a, a miracle worker. He healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind. He, he fed the multitudes. We know that Jesus was a great teacher and a strong and compassionate leader. We know that he was innocent in every way and he was falsely accused and he was murdered for crimes that he did not commit. We know that he raised himself from the dead and yes, we know this because the resurrection is a historically proven fact. Don't let anyone try to tell you or convince you otherwise. There are so many eyewitness accounts, credible eyewitness accounts to the resurrection. It boggles the mind at the leaps and bounds that people have to make to try to deny the resurrection. They're just, just ignoring historical evidence. If you ever wonder how something that is so historically and eternally significant could be so systematically covered up like that. Just look at the Jewish Holocaust during World War II. Amen. You know, there are many people, and their numbers are growing today, even in mainstream circles, people who ought to know better, who deny that the Holocaust ever happened. It's just a big, grand conspiracy. Yeah. Well, no. As a matter of fact, it was history. Amen. It happened. Yeah. Just like the resurrection of Jesus happened. So we know all the facts about Jesus. We know what the Bible tells us about him. We know these facts. But the question is, do we know him? Do we know him? And that's what Jesus was getting at in these first verses in Matthew 16 this morning. He's asking the question to his disciples to get them to think through their feelings. You know, our thoughts inform us and our feelings inform us. And it's error if we lean more on one than the other. We, we have to operate in both. And, and God wants to engage them, not only in a heart level, but on a head level. Amen. Amen. Who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? He's asking this question to us. Can I just tell you that God loves a believer who thinks as well as feels? Amen. I'm going to go off on a little tangent here. Um, Jesus told us to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Amen. Church, he never asked us to turn our brains off. Amen. Not when we're working, 
not when we're playing, and certainly not during worship. Knowing and serving and loving God is as much a thinking exercise as it is a feeling exercise. We cannot uncouple one from the other. When we do, we stray into error. Let me say that there is a reason that Jesus doubled down in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 when they asked him what's the greatest commandment and he said that we ought to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our mind. If you have all reason and no emotion, then you have a church with no heart and basically you fall into the heresy of legalism. You swing too far the other way where you're all emotion and no reason and you have a church with no head. And I don't mean it's head, I mean no headship. There's no, no leader, no Lord. Because what's right is based on how you feel and not necessarily on sound doctrine. There's no headship and you fall into apostasy. I think that those are two of the great reasons why people will stand before the Lord in the last day and they will say, Lord, Lord, I... I did all these things, and he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Because on the one hand, when people put their, their faith in their rule-keeping, they call it Jesus. On the other hand, people put their faith in feelings, and they call it Jesus. We see two poles, these two poles in a lot of churches today, and the divide is becoming wider and wider. It seems like churches are starting to look more and more different from each other, which is cause for great concern in the body of Christ. That's why I'm very cautious about churches that are very liturgical in their tradition. It's good. I mean, look, liturgy isn't wrong. I, I love liturgy. It is, it is good to have a directed and purposeful readings from the Scripture. But many of those churches that follow a, a really liturgical tradition, they, they rely way too much on their processes. So much so that their church members believe that attending church so many times and giving so much money and saying so many prayers and taking this many communions and getting baptized and just checking off all the boxes, that's what saves them. I was at an ecumenical gathering, which is a gathering of a lot of different faith traditions one time, and I made the statement about baptism that there is nothing particularly special about the water. And you would have thought that I had committed an apostasy right there. Because, because the, the, the fact is that you can go under the water and come back up unchanged. Right, right. Amen. Baptism is a symbolism. But there are people that believe there is actual power, salvific, saving power in going in the water and coming back up. It's a commandment for us to follow. But what is, who saves us? Is it the water or is it Christ? Amen. It's Christ. That's just an act of obedience. And I said that, and you would have thought that I had, I had just, man, it was a, I had to tread water there for a while. <laughs> Get it, water. <laughs> I had to tread baptism. <laughs> they check all the boxes, and that's what saves them. And Jesus clearly teaches that that is, that is false thinking. He clearly teaches against that. That way of thinking. On the other hand, I'm also very cautious about these churches that are, are very highly emotional because they tend to elevate the experience over doctrine. In fact, in the basis of early Pentecostalism, many of the Pentecostal fathers wrote that the experience of God is, is paramount or, or, or primary over the doctrine of God. 
Boy, that just opens the door up for a whole lot of air. I'm all about experiencing God. We need to experience God, but not at the expense of sound doctrine. We should experience God, but we can't, we can't seek the experience without the understanding. Let me tell you that Satan loves experience. And he loves to use it as a tool to deceive. That's what he used in the garden with Adam and Eve. And he uses it in the world today and he uses it in the church today. That's why there are a lot of experience-driven churches that they've just thrown Paul's commandments to do things decently and in order. They've just thrown it out the window. And we see all this uncontrolled, erratic, ecstatic behavior in some of these worship experiences. And they think the more wild it gets, the more spiritual it is. I, I couldn't disagree with that more. And I'm very cautious when I say things like this because I, I don't want to come against a, a legitimate movement of the Holy Spirit, okay? But I'm going to tell you that much of what you see ain't that. It's emotionalism and experience-driven... I'm going to put quotation fingers around it and call it worship. If something seems to be a bit too hyped up, maybe a bit manufactured, it probably is. I don't mean to be overly critical. There are some people that are much more expressive in their worship than others, and I get that. I totally understand that. But when you are experience-driven... When you seek the emotional high and you dismiss the doctrine, or worse yet, you just completely ignore the doctrine, when you're all heart and no head and you're just looking for the experience, even if you call that experience Jesus, then worship has no longer become about Christ. It's become about what you feel. It's about you. And church, that's what alcoholics and drug addicts seek. Amen. The experience. So, we can go way off base in either direction. We can worship God uh, with our head. We can worship God with our heart. The Bible calls us to worship God with our whole being, our heart and our head. God never called us to abandon our heart in favor of our head and never called us to do the, the other, to abandon our head in favor of the heart. We must serve him with both. And I'll, just a point of confession, I'll tell you that it's, it's for me that serving the Lord with my mind is a much easier uh, proposition than with my heart. And that may sound foreign to a lot of people. I'm not a particularly emotionally driven person, except maybe when it comes to my girls being in college or going off to college. <laughs> I'm not particularly emotional. Um, generally, I'm, I'm a very cerebral person. Uh, so experiencing those overwhelming emotions that, that overflow into certain kinds of behavior, just that's kind of a... A foreign experience to me. I'm not particularly familiar with that. Joy is a very big deal for me. You've heard me talk about it many times. Serious, uh, indomitable joy. But it's a big deal for me because it helps me make sense out of so much of what the scripture tells me. It's, it's an intellectual tool for me. It's a wonderful tool. I love it, but I have to work. I mean, I have to really work at experiencing it. And some of you don't. Some of you, boy, you're just happy all the time. <laughs> you, just, you just feel it. <laughs> it's like it just bubbles up. And that's great. I envy you. I get passionate about what I understand. I get passionate about what makes sense to me, not what feels good to me. Um, I'm much more motivated by understanding than I am by feeling. 
And I, I'm, I'm, not everyone is like me in that area. I get that. You know, I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm probably in the minority. I think probably most people are, are more emotionally driven than they are, are um, um, I want to say, driven by their reason. Um, I'm, I'm not elevating one over the other. I'm not saying I've got it good and y'all don't. That's not, that's not it at all. Um, but I'm probably not like most people in that area. Um, I think a majority of people are emotionally driven. They experience truth through how they feel about a situation. You know, a situation, if, how it feels, that's what communicates truth to them. Um, and that's not how I look at it. You know, oftentimes if the, if the feeling comes into conflict with the reason for an emotionally driven person, whatever they feel wins out over whatever they, they reason. Amen. Right? Now y'all think about that. You who are emotionally driven, that's probably true. Right? I'm saying it, so it's got to be true, right? <laughs> so, they love Jesus. They don't necessarily have to understand him. You know, they love Jesus because he is, or they, they're drawn to Jesus because he is lovable and likable. And he's a good guy. He's a good God. But they don't necessarily have to understand him. They don't need to know his teachings. They just know how he makes them feel and how they feel towards him and that is enough. Now, I, don't, I don't know if I can drive this point home enough. Love, and I mean real love, real, like what the Bible calls love, it requires both the heart and the mind, reason and emotion. God has not asked us to do something that is unreasonable, and neither has he asked us to do something that is without our affections. Okay? We must, we must serve him in, with both. So that's just a side note. I'm, I'm not going to charge you for any of that or hold you longer. Back to Matthew 16, we, uh, we see that everyone, it seems, has an idea about who Jesus is, right? And to try to tie this into what I just said a second ago, so it wasn't just a, uh, an aside the point, all of their ideas about who Jesus is are driven either by, by one or the other extreme, either, either they're reasoning it out or they're feeling it out, okay? So some people reason that he is a prophet, or some other figure. They, they look at the passages in the Old Testament. Look at the similarities here. See, he must be this guy. And some of them are feeling it out. They feel the connection that they have with him and what he is saying and the connection they have through the prophets and what the prophets are saying. These must be the same people. This must be because I feel like it is. They feel it. And they feel it deeply. It must be one of them. So in verse 13, Jesus asks his disciples, he says, Who... Do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, this, is, this could be confusing because we can read it in two ways. He says, who do people think that the Son of Man is? In other words, who, who, there's this title, the Son of Man, and who do people think that is? Or he could be saying, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? And we can look at the other Gospels and know um, how to read this. In both Mark and Luke, Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? He leaves out the title, Son of Man. And, and even in Matthew, four or five times earlier, before he comes to this question, he's already referred to himself as the Son of Man. So this was something they've already heard him refer to himself as. So Jesus is clearly talking about himself here, not just the title, the Son of Man. And to be clear, Son of Man is a title. It's a messianic title, and they would have understood it as a messianic title, a, a title for the Messiah. So the emphasis in the question isn't on the title, the Son of Man, or even on who Jesus is, really. Because he told them who he is when he said, the Son of Man, I am the Messiah, right? So the, the emphasis of the question is, who is doing the thinking? Amen. 
We know that by the second question that he asks, all right? Because that's what changes in the question, not is the perspective. Who do they think? Who do you think? What do people think the Son of Man is? And uh, that's important to understand because there's a distinction that he makes, people and you. And that distinction is very important because of what comes after the question. It's something that's both huge and historic in eternal terms. So the disciples, they answer him. They say, people say that you are John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And that's, that's what they say. That's what the people say. And Jesus asks them again, and this time with a twist, he says, but who do you say? So I got what people say, and you tell them, but who do, who do you say? So there's a distinction between what people say and what you say. And so now Peter answers. Again, we all know the story. I don't, I don't believe that we are meant to think that Peter was the only one that could have answered in the way that he did. They were all Jesus' disciples. All of them were in the, the inner circle, so to speak. But Peter was the one who spoke up. And in, in many ways, under Jesus, Peter was sort of the leader of the group. So Peter was speaking for them all when he, he said, You are the Christ. Amen. That means God's anointed one. You are the son of the living God. Now, this is not emotional thinking. This is not reasonable. This is not reason thinking. This is not emotion talking. It's not just a mechanical or surgical analysis of the Old Testament prophecies that, that come to this logical conclusion that Jesus is the Christ. It is it is not some emotional response either. It's, it's in fact both. It's the whole counsel of God that appeals to the whole person that God made, and it gives Peter a God-sent, God-created, God-revealed conclusion that Jesus is the Christ. Amen. Amen. I don't miss my words. It's a God-granted conclusion. In verse 17, Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but who did? My father who is in heaven. You didn't come to this conclusion on your own. You didn't come to this conclusion on your own mental faculties or your emotional uh, faculties. You came to this conclusion because God, whole counsel, worked through you, the whole person, to come to this conclusion. He gave it to you. It is God-given. Now notice the difference here. People said a whole lot of things about who Jesus was. And that has not changed one iota today. A lot of people out there saying a lot of different things about Jesus. Some say that he is a great prophet, but that's it. Some say he's a great teacher, but that's it. Some say he was a made-up figure, an archetype, but not a real person. Some say he absolutely was real, but he wasn't divine. Some say he was real, he was divine, but, but he doesn't mean what he says. <laughs> we say he is the Christ the Son of the living God. Amen. And that means that He is both human and divine. He is prophet, teacher, priest, and king, all rolled up into one. That's what it means to be God's anointed one, the Son of the living God. The sacrificial lamb and the lion of Judah, Amen. all rolled up Amen. into one. That is what is revealed by the Spirit of God to us. It's a key word there, revealed. Jesus said, this has been revealed to you by my Father in heaven. In 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul says that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. 
This is the power of the gospel through God's amazing grace at work in our lives that we are able, even able to say Jesus is Lord. To say it with meaning and believe it. We can't say it outside of the Spirit of God. That's what Paul says. You might see him as a prophet. You may see him as a teacher. You may see him as a good person. But outside of the Spirit of God, that's it. I see him as Lord and Master and Savior. Holy and divine, powerful and righteous, meek and humble. And I can't brag about that. I can't brag about seeing him in such a special, glorious way. Because that's a God-granted sight. You see that? Granted to me by God in his, in his mercy. Do you see what Jesus said about the answer? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When, when Peter answered him, he said it was revealed to Peter. This means that his eyes were opened, your blinders were taken off. He was made to be able to see and to understand you are the Son of God. And that made all the difference. When you see what's coming next, it makes all the difference. I love the words of that song, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you, to see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. Open the eyes of my heart. 2 Corinthians 4, 3, Paul said, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Amen. Now, at, at one time, you and I were all blind. We could not see the light of the glory of Christ. We were in darkness. This is why Jesus healed the blind. Do you, do you know that? There's a reason behind. It wasn't just to, to give the blind man his physical sight. Amen. Jesus wanted to demonstrate, I am Lord over the flesh and the spirit. If I can do this in the physical, what can I do in the spirit? I'm Lord over physical sight. I'm Lord over spiritual sight. He opens our eyes so that we can see him as, as Peter saw him, as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And look at how, how Paul says this is accomplished, this, this eye-opening experience that we have, because we have all been blinded by the God of this world. Our eyes must be opened. And Paul says in verse 5, For we proclaim, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. The gospel church must be proclaimed. Amen. That is the means that God has chosen through which all of the world will go from seeing him as people see him to seeing him as you see him. Amen. From seeing him as one of the prophets or a good guy to seeing him as Lord, as the Christ, the son of the living God. We must proclaim not ourselves, but Christ as Lord. And look what he says next. With ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. So we go, we say it, and we do it. We say it and we do it. And in the saying and the doing, eyes are opened. And Jesus is made to be seen as glorious, as the son of the living God. Lives are changed, hearts are mended. People come to the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. That's how it happens. That is great responsibility. Yes. Amen. Especially when you look at what Jesus has to say next. I'm not going to go there today. 
and I'll go there next week, but it's great responsibility. Of first importance, do you know him? Not do you know about him, do you know him? Of first importance. I mean, I know you know who he is. We all have the textbook answers, I'm sure, but do you know Christ as Savior and Lord? That's critical to what Jesus tells his disciples about the church, about the establishment of his church, about what the church can do. Of first importance is Jesus our Lord because none of what comes next matters if we haven't gotten that right. And in this setting, it may seem obvious. It may seem like a rudimentary kind of thing. Well, duh. And you may be thinking, I've been doing this my whole life. When's the last time you reminded yourself just who it is that you're serving? When's the last time you really sat and you beheld the glory that is Christ? Where, how far you've come. You know, I grew up in church. And so I didn't get into a whole, I got into some trouble, but not a whole lot of trouble. I mean, I didn't go off the deep end. Like some have. And that's okay. I'm I'm not saying I'm any better. I'm just, you know, it, it would be easy for me to say I didn't have far to come. But I was in just as much darkness as the most wicked person out there. Even though mom and dad raised me to love Christ and to know Christ, I knew all about him. I didn't know him until I knew him. T.D. Jake says that God does not have grandchildren. I love that. He does not have grandchildren. He has children. You cannot be saved because somebody else knows him. You've got to know him yourself. And I mean know him as Savior. I mean, I can, I can put all the goodness in my children that, that I, can, I can bear to do. That I, I mean, I can try all the time. To talk to them and to teach them and train them. And scripture teaches me that if I teach them in these ways, when they grow old, they'll not depart from it. But it does not tell me they'll love him because I love him. They got to come to that on their own. And they can do it, and I I can set the stage, but they've got to come to it on their own. You've got to come to it on your own. When's the last time you sat and reminded yourself about who, who Christ is and what he did for you? That is of first importance. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I am nothing without you. That's what Paul says. I'm nothing without you. Would you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we love you. I love you. Lord, I love you with my mind and I... I love you with my heart, and I pray that everyone in the room experiences that same thing. Lord, that we not only have a right thinking about you, but we have a right affection toward you. As Lord and Savior, as divine. God, I pray that you just go with us today. Be an ever-present reminder of where we could have been without you. Let us rejoice in you, for you have done great things in our lives. Even when we suffer, Lord, you have done great things in our lives. You have given us a promise and a promised end and a good end, Lord, and it is, it is good. And we have cause to rejoice even on our darkest days here. Father, you're good to us, and I pray that you send us out of here with, with a joy unspeakable and bring us back safely at the appointed time. Help us be your ministers into a world that is dark. Let us proclaim your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.